The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello and welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. Today we're going to be exploring some big questions like life purpose, why are we here on this planet at this time, and the existence of life after death. And these are some big questions that I've been trying to explore for years. So it's going to be really interesting to get the opinion and uh, some of the experiences of my guest today. We're going to be looking at these questions through the lens of Jacob Cooper and his personal insight based on direct experience of an NDE or near-death experience. And Jacob's book, Life After Breath, has received some great reviews from people like Dr. Raymond Moody, the best-selling author of Life After Life and Glimpses of Eternity, and Anita Morjani, who wrote Dying to Be Me. And I love Anita. We're going to talk a little bit about her as well and, and that connection. So I want to welcome Jacob to the show. Thanks for talking to us today. A pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on as an honored guest. Well, it's interesting that we had connected on social media a little bit back and forth, and I was aware of your book floating around out there, and I, I wanted to read it. So I'm glad, even though we had some stops and starts, that we were able to connect. It was meant to be. I it think was. the heavens. Yeah. <laughs> it was meant to be. <laughs> so I'm really happy you could talk about this today because I'm really fascinated about your experience. So first of all, since putting this out there, we talked a little bit before we started the show and I was asking you, you know, how, how things have been received. I mean, what do you hope that people take away from reading this book? You know, I, I think it's everyone has their own subjective take. I mean, my job is just to plant the seed, um, you know, and have people formulate their own conclusions and opinions. Uh, but my goal is is really to give back inspiration to people. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels with my near-death experience, which we'll get into, you know, in this period that we've been going through in the last year and a half. And I know when I was breathless or lifeless, you know, what helped me out was inspiration, was really connectivity, um, connecting to what's inside of myself to override, you know, any paralysis outside of myself. And so my hope is that people find inspiration and recollections of not what they're going through, but rather who they are to enhance what they're going through. I've read a couple of different experiences like this, of course, Raymond Moody that we mentioned and Anita Morjani, um, especially with Anita's story. I I noticed some parallels from what she experienced and, and what you experienced. 
So I thought that that was pretty interesting. I mean, I'm sure there's university, universality, like, is that a word? There's universal you, things that people uh, will experience, right? In, in something like this. But I, I wanted to ask you first, how was that connection made between you and Anita? <laughs> yeah, you know, several years ago when her book came out, I was, you know, starting um, to do public lectures, you know, out in Long Island and, you know, upstate and stuff like that. And, you know, after one of my lectures, someone came up to me and said, you're, you're great, but you should really listen to this Anita Marjani. And I'm like, who is she? And the person is like, she is just an amazing speaker and you could learn a lot from her. And I put in the filing cabinet, you know, a bit, you know, and then, um, you know, Wayne, Wayne Dyer, who I, I never really followed during when he was, you know, on the planet, really. Yeah. He came to me after his passing and says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you out with your work. And I thought that was incredibly self-aggrandizing. I'm like, who am I, this little kid from Long Island, for, to have the great Wayne Dyer speak to, tell you know, uh, you know, mediumistically, and so I just kind of like, ignored it. And then a couple of years later, you know, I was doing interviews, and then people that were connected to Wayne, you know, came into my life and actually helped me, uh, you know, write, get the book out. And Wayne was very pivotal at helping them get the book out. And I know Anita could attest to how big of an influence. Uh, and belief system that Wade had in, in Anita. And so I, I really thank Wayne for pulling a lot of strings. And I think Anita was was certainly one of them just in terms of connection, because what are the chances that a first-time author, a new kid on the block, has an endorsement by you know a New York Times bestselling author like Anita? That's not logical. That doesn't happen. And uh, I'm very humbled that, you know, there's there's blessings from the other side. And Wayne, you know, is helping this book get to the right hands. I love that connection for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, I love Anita so much and, and I had of course worked, worked with Wayne so I could see where he would mm -hmm. be pulling those strings and be interested in, you know, having, having you two meet. I think that's great. Right. I think that's what it's all about. You know, everyone has someone before them that really bought into them, that gave them that, that, that bit of confidence and, you know, we're on the phone in the wee hours of the morning, you know, talking late at night. And then it's all about paying it forward. And I hope to do that to someone, too. It's a beautiful thing when you're able to pay it forward when you're given that, you know, bit of grace. Right, right. When you get a break and then if you can pay that forward or help someone else along the way, yeah. Yeah. that's it. That's the good stuff. <laughs> so now that this book is out, do you feel that, I mean, I, I noticed this in our in our country, I guess you could call in the West, that there's there's still a big fear and people don't like to talk about mm -hmm. death and dying, which is what's so great about your story that gives people hope that it isn't necessarily this horrible thing, but really a natural transition that we shouldn't really fear. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly this this time for many people with the last year and a half you know, that expedited notion that the body, you know, is, is, is impermanent, um, you know, is acknowledged. And you could either engage with that in two ways, you know, through, through a bit of fear and trepidation or allowing your life to have a lot more purpose, meaning and depth to it and being able to not gravitate to the small things that you used to really live your life by and to govern your life by the bigger picture orientation. Right. Well, we certainly have been given that uh, that thought, you know, where, look, why are we worrying about such small things 
when when look at what we're dealing with right now, the reality, you know, people are losing their lives. We're dealing with this horrible virus that we're all trying to make sense of in, in one way or another. So yeah, to have your story come out where people will hopefully take away that it shouldn't be such a horrible, fearful thing and that there is some comfort and love waiting for us, I think is a great message to put out there, especially at this time. You know, it, it is possible to find purpose within, you know, the utmost pain, you know, and to transform that. And we've seen that throughout, you know, history. Um, you look at anyone who's in any position of influence, they've experienced storms and those storms have not broken, did not break them. They make, they made them in a way. Um, and they were able to tap into something greater than something outside themselves and the challenges in front of them. So I wanted to get into the experience, actually, because it's really incredible, the story that you share in the book. And to give people context, I mean, you wrote this book 20 years after the NDE actually happened. So the near-death experience happened at an early age. You were three. And it's incredible that you have that kind of recall. I don't think I can remember anything (laughs) from that time. So leading, but leading up to that, can you set the stage a little bit of where you were living and what your life was like, what your life was like, because that, that influences everything, right? That's where you're, you're pulling from those experiences growing up. Mm. This was prior to the near death experience or or when I was writing it or, or, or after. Um, No, like what, what was your life like at that time before the NDE? I mean, you were just a normal kid. You grew up in a Jewish family. Yeah. You know, I, I was very thankful that I had all my basic needs met. I you know, had parents that were, you know, in fields of humanitarian work and they were always given back, you know, come from a lineage of three, you know, social workers, you know, generationally. And so we were very much a family that was about giving back and finding herself in service you know? and it was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful home, but it was also a home that probably believed in the here now more than the airy fairy mystical kind of things. Uh, we were very much about, you know, the Dharma of our lives and putting our head down and going to work, you know, versus really connecting to some of the bigger questions and uh, greater realities at hand. It wasn't something that we just stopped and pondered. pondered. We were always on the go and always on the move um, really about purpose. You know, that's, I was blessed to grow up in that. Right. That's interesting. Because I, my experience was similar but different in that I, I grew up in a Catholic family, but my mother was a teacher. My father was a, a social worker for health and rehabilitative services. So giving back was a big thing for him too. And we never talked about some of the uh, subjects that came up in your book, but it was, they were things that I was always interested in. I always had questions. Mm. So it's interesting that you you had a similar experience in that way. So take us back to that day because it's so incredible. You don't really say in the book exactly what triggered it. So I'm guessing was it an extreme asthma attack that day? I, well, I had whooping cough, which you know led to my suffocation. You know, and for infants, children, you know, and even adults, you know, whooping cough could be quite fatal if if it's left untreated. Um, so as an infant, I'd had, I had this cough at the time, you know, talking to my mother wasn't that bad, but it just, you know, led to my, from the whipping cough, it led to my suffocation. Um, so that's common in, you know, in infants and children, you know, to suffocate from it, you know. 
Okay. So that day you, it was kind of nothing out of the ordinary. It was just a normal day and you were transported pretty, pretty quickly. Like when, when that event happened, I'm sure you didn't, you didn't really know what was going on. Right. I mean, to have that kind of experience. Yeah. Well, um, I was fully aware, you know, more aware than I've ever been. And I, I think, you know, that that really ties into how trauma works you know certainly you know a week or two a week ago we we had 911 and the one thing about 911 is you know you ask someone where they were they'll they'll remember it no matter almost what age you were uh, you don't remember what you're doing 915 916 but on that particular day the trauma was so intensive uh that you have recollection you know it's it's really embedded in your psyche and so i think for myself, um, certainly trauma allowed me to hold on to this experience, as well as this experience was not something that came from my brain or produced by my body. This experience was otherworldly and it defied, you know, logic of, of linear processing and linear memory. It was something far beyond, you know, this this body, this time, this place. And so I do believe that's why I was able to remember it. But, uh, you know, people ask me, how could I, how do I remember it? And I said, how could I forget? I think so many people forget who they are, where they come from. They're, um, you know, there was once a time for all of us, we were free and unencumbered and, you know, traveling in the life between life and on the other side. And some people remember that a little easier than others, but it's all there, you know, right, right within our own backyard. Right. So the fact that it was just such an incredible experience that, like you said, how could you forget? Yeah. It was just intense. Yeah. yeah. It, it was I look at it as a double-edged sword, you know, because a lot of people focus on the euphoric elements of a near-death experience. And while that is there for, for, for many, uh, for myself, it was incredibly traumatizing to suffocate. Um, you know, you could hear suffocation, you could hear that word, but until you actually experience that, you know, it's it's a totally different reality. And so for me to suffocate, it felt like this endless paralysis where I wasn't you know, in this body, and I wasn't on the other side. It was just this incubational period of what felt like eternal suffering. And um, I think the greatest relief was being able to be taken out of that and to look at look at that right in the face and to see, you know, the impermanence of that and how only the eternity of the soul will last. You know, difficulties or you know hardships or, or bumps, or, you know, are part of the journey, but they're not the journey in its entirety. I could see that where nothing else matters. If you can't breathe, that's it. If you're having a hard time. And that's one thing that I've really has struck me with people that are dealing with COVID because that's the thing that everyone is having that complaint. They can't breathe. My my brother, my own brother had a bad bout with COVID and he's still trying to recover. And that's the hardest part is getting your breath back. So I could see where that you know, that would be so terrifying. So when I was reading the experience that you had that day, some of the NDE that you describe has been described by others, like the long tunnel, Mm -hmm. moving very fast. Mm -hmm. But you describe buildings that you call a golden palace, and you immediately saw, or there were other beings there, angelic beings. Mm -hmm. And that's so beautiful. I, I was hoping you could explain that. Oh, what, sure. what you saw? Um, you know, people, it's, I guess, the biggest question outside of life purpose is who or what is God or where is God? And, uh, you know, from my experience in the near-death experience, uh, from from what I, what I experienced that, 
got as an old, but the near-death experience, when I had it, there was no limitation on euphoria. And I was able to go just what I felt like the centermost high octave of reality as we know it. And it was an ever-ending sense of euphoria and all-knowing and all-encompassing. And the best way I could describe that as in our terms as God, but even those those words are limited. But it, it was it was an energy that I was forever connected to and a part of. Uh, but also this this energy that was so so powerful that I had to shield myself from because the light, the vibrations, the octaves was such a diametric difference than what I was going through. Even at a young age of three years old, it was it was a lot to adjust to. Uh, but the apex of of ever ending eternity as we know it, um, and the endless climax of that feeling, uh, the best way I could describe that is God. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, in my experience, I did encounter not just God, but, but was able to see God in all, you know, that, that God is not, uh, monopolized by one person, one entity, but it is something that we're all a part of. Um, some people embody that a little bit more than others and, they have a little bit more realization of the God winks in their lives and they're walking a guided path. But at our phyla is that, is that intelligence, is that peace that we're all, it's all there when you burn everything away and you get to the core. Right. And that's what people mean when they say, you know, we're all one. And sometimes that sounds like a corny thing to say or something that has no meaning, like a toss away phrase, Mm. but from your experience, that really is true, right? That we all do have that peace within yeah, us. We just yeah. forget it. And in my book, I also speak about my profound out-of-body experience years later, um, you know, where I had that realization of we are one. It just felt like a cliche new age phrase and it got kind of, you know, cheap and it wasn't, just didn't have any meaning. But I was able to see that through my own OBE within a synagogue and just to see the forgetfulness and and some of the amnesia that people have of that true realization. And, you know, we're able to really find ways to lose ourselves to find who we are, you know, right. is that this one connectivity. Sometimes the ego and the egocentric thoughts and identity act as a barrier to that bigger reality at hand. Do you think that people mean well, as a, I guess, as a civilization, like if you look back Historically, you know, there's, there's Christianity, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, like people are trying to make sense of it, that all encompassing loving force, but then they're calling it these different things. And then they set all these different rules and regulations on what it's supposed to be. And you're, and you're grown up Hmm. learning that, right? That's, that's what we're taught, but we're, but what we're missing is that essence, do you think like, although even though all of these traditions try to explain that, it, it really is that simple that we all have that peace within us, but sometimes it's contradictory to the tradition that you're brought up in or, or what people are being taught. Yeah, I don't think that God is limited or just found within the religion or his person, but rather it's something innately in all of us within our own backyard. And I think there's a big distinction between the God outside of ourselves and the God you know, you know, in the world as we know it, you know, a lot of it is projected and has transference of, of the way that we see reality and as it is versus this God that is so far beyond any comprehension and understanding. And there's no limitations. And I, I say that God exists not because of religion, but despite of it right. in many ways, or the afterlife exists not because of it. But 
I see God as just this eternal ray of light and, you know, there's just this uh, prisms of light to see it through different, you know, practices or traditions. But, you know, those aren't the only ways. I think the bigger way is 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 very much personalized and very much something that is, is connected deep within, you know, each soul um, without as much interference or interpretation from others. Right. And that's a journey that everybody comes to on their own, right? We all go through that, or at least I feel like I've been looking or trying to understand or explain that existence and that relationship. And I have to be honest with you that it's been, it's been pretty thin lately, even to believe that there is any existence of any kind of loving presence like that. Oh. It's been a, cha- it's been a challenge for me <laughs> lately. It's hard. It's hard. You, it know, is hard. you know, because I think, the biggest question is if this is an all loving God and, you know, all this and all that, then how do all these injustices be allowed? You know, is God just this, um, checked out, um, you know, just, 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 just being that, that, that has no say or place within everything. You know, I think at least the difference with religion is God has like a direct influence in our daily lives versus the, the inner God. You know, it's a lot more empowered. It's a lot, it's a lot, it could be seen as a little bit more aloof you know, in kind of detached in a way. Uh, but but I think in a way we're very much empowered where there's not a dependency, you know, on that, but an ability to be empowered and to find that for ourselves. And I think every parent, they don't want their kids to fall because they're afraid of their kids getting hurt. But that's sometimes how we learn. And if we look at any period of civilization, through the micro and the macro, it's been periods of setbacks that have hopefully allowed us to propel forward and you know, this is a bit of turbulence, but, you know, but then any storm, we could find the eye of the hurricane. And I think a lot of it is based off of people's ability to have a strong foundation, you know, to really make the most out of the strong winds coming each person's way. Uh, but, you know, that's why it's very important to stay connected and to listen to these types of podcasts, to really recharge your faith and your knowing, you know, that there is a purpose behind the pain and there's a guiding force within us and around us. Sometimes we just don't recognize that. Right. It's just not all for nothing and pointless all right. that there, that there is a point, but yeah, it does sometimes become a challenge and, and get difficult. And for me, I, I want to have that kind of experience. Like I want to see the angel. I want to have like that direct mind blowing mm-hmm. transcendent, like Maslow would call peak experiences without having to do ayahuasca or LSD <laughs> yeah. you know, or anything like that. Although I don't know, maybe I would, I would be open, but y- you see, you see what I'm like, I'm lo- maybe I'm looking for too much of the, the big experience that right. I want to have that undeniable contact or presence. Right. There's a big distinction between force and power. I think power tends to reinvigorate itself, right? You know, when you connect to power, it recharges, it re it reinvigorates versus force. It could, it tends to deplete our power. Force tends to exert our own force or, you know, exert our own, exert our own will. And what I learned from the near-death experience was it wasn't forced. It came from this power, not outside of me, but that I was always connected to. Um, and sometimes in our world, we, we tend to think that we have to muscle growth. We have to muscle all these things and kind of will it to existence but it's very gentle. It's it's there always. We don't have to try to force it. You know, within patience, with openness, we recognize that all of this is within our own backyard. It's not something outside or something that we have to become to get. 
I think our reality teaches us that in order to have something great, we need to be something great or we need to do something great. You know, it's not that we don't have it inside of us and, and, and can't embody that. So remembering that we already are which whatever we're seeking, it's all there. Um, and it could open ourselves anytime, any moment, um, you know, and it's there. Right. But sometimes, yes, when we're going through all this stuff, we want that quantum, you know, experience where we want life to kind of implode in flames in front of us to have an undeniable knowing. Uh, but those are possible too. You know, I, I've had in my yeah, own personal I sh- life. I shouldn't give up. <laughs> I shouldn't give up on that. I think it, it is possible. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes you will just get to that point where you're you're overlooking what's there, you know, that connection. And then when you were able to have that experience, you could automatically remember like, oh, yes. Did, did you feel like feel that like a, re- a recognition when you were having that experience that, oh, this is how it, it this is how it is. The greatest, um, you know, analogy that I could have is, is very diametrically different in our world. In our world, we're used to pensing ourselves up for what's due next week or what, what happened yesterday, you know, kind of like the Lao Tzu thing, you know, where the sadness is in the past, anxiety is in the future. We're never quite engage in the moment. We never trust the moment. We're always jumping from it or evading it in some somehow, some way. Um, you know, in the outer world and how it plays in front of us has us very disjointed, disconnected from the moment. And having this, this near-death experience, there was no linearity of time. I was able to sit in the clear knowing, the clear understanding that all is well, all was always well, all will always be well. And this, you know, thing that we call life is a very brief experience. Uh, you know, it's there for, for a reason. But at the end of the day, you always return back to this oasis of clear knowing and clear understanding of all as well and this euphoric notion that you're fine just as you are and you're infinitely greater than you could even think. Um, and even sitting in this chair, you're not even in this chair. You're in a room in probably a house on a spinning planet going, you know, orbiting, you know, you know, the sun and all that. So, Really, we're not what we think we are, just on a fear physical basis, and the same thing with our forgetfulness of our true being. That's that's so true, and I loved how you explained that. Not that process or that aspect of the NDE was very similar to what Anita Morjani talked about in her book that that time doesn't exist in the way that we think of it here on this planet. That your awareness can be anywhere, and you you just understand things immediately. Mm. And I, I love that. I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Right. <laughs> you know, I want to uh, have that that understanding. We're just going to take a short break. We'll be back uh, in just a minute. I'm talking with Jacob Cooper about his incredible book, Life After Breath, where he reveals the experiences and the understanding that he took from an incredible near-death experience. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Hmm. 
Human Design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum Human Design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Welcome back. I'm talking with Jacob Cooper about his book, Life After Breath. He's gotten some great reviews out there on Amazon from people like Dr. Raymond Moody and also from Anita Morjani, who wrote her own incredible near-death experience encounter, Dying to Be Me. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about kind of the similarities that I, I recognized from Anita's book and from what you described as there being no linear time and that we just have this incredible awareness when we pass over. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about that I read that was a little different from other NDE experiences that I've read about is your description of soul family. And I've, I've read from Dr. Brian Weiss where he's, well, he's talking about really more reincarnation, but his definition of a soul family is different in that when we experience other lifetimes that I could have been my mother's mother or my father was my mother or whatever that incarnation was previously. But your definition of soul family or what you describe is, is a little bit different. It's not just people from your immediate family that have passed over. Is that right? How would you explain that, the soul family? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, you know, with different carnations, we really take on different roles, but it's not strictly limited to biological, you know, nuclear family. And I think it's flexible, but I think it's, you know, it could, you know, for instance, within my book, I speak about different students that I taught in my last carnation and how I just felt this karmic tie to them. You know, and so they were a part of my family. But I think overall, we try, you know, we use these terms and sometimes they could tell a part of the story, but not the full story. I think the greatest definition that it could have is that we all are soul and we all are a family. Um, there's nothing to divide that. Within that, there's a similar ray of God that we carry, a similar expression of God, a similar um, personality, a similar outlook. Um, and I learned this in the way from my aunt who was um, having, you know, deathbed visions. She was, you know, she was dying and she was having all these, you know, you know incredible encounters. And she was one of my mentors in my life through um, many extents. But she was, her last message to me was about the soul family. And she was saying, you know, if you've looked at a picture, if you look at each in, individual family members, they might look physically different. They might have different jobs or stuff like that. But if you look at the the eyes and you look past it, there's an undeniable deep connectivity, you know, that is profound and and distinct with a lot of the, you know, members in that picture. And I thought nothing of it. I said that's that's a nice teaching, but whatever. And then like a year or two later, I was I was connected to her, you know, in a mediumistic reading, and she says, "Why your aunt is here, and why does she keep on telling me the word picture? Picture? What is that about?" And to me, that was validation of her message of soul family, where there was something very profound, you know, engrouped, uh, w- w- you know, w- with individuals, w- with the soul family, 
and how there was an ancient um, tie, you know, to, to that family. But I, but I think beyond that, you know, we're all a part of this soul family. I really do believe we're all, you know, just children's in God's playground. And certainly I learned that in my near death experience, which happened in a playground, go figure. Right. So we're all just here, you know, to be our brothers and sisters keepers. There's no, no real differentiation of that, but you know, you could, you could see it that way and experience that to to a degree. Right. And the uh, aunt that you described, she's your aunt seal that you uh-huh. tell us about in the book. And was she the one that, well, she was the one that really encouraged you to write this down, right? This whole story. She, she was, and she was, um, if you ever hear, hear the song Feliz Navidad by, by, I believe, Jose Feliciano, he was actually one of her students, and she taught the visually impaired throughout her lifetime, you know, in, in the New York City, you know, area. But beyond that, that was an allegorical reference for the life that she lived, where she helped you to see the unseen forces. Um, and she really was a guide for me in that extent. And it was just her birthday a couple couple weeks ago, and I just remember the brilliant Virgo that she was of, of service, but of also constantly thinking about the bigger picture of life and seeing past what meets the eye and finding greater meaning behind the turbulence and pain of her life. You know, right? And was she the one that you would ask those kinds of questions to rather than your parents? She was the one more open to those things. No, I don't know if she was necessarily my Yoda or anything like yeah. that. <laughs> but we we would have uh, very deep conversations, and um, within my near death experience, in order for me to survive, I had this experience that was always close to me. But I almost needed to put the beach ball down in the water just to survive in this reality because it was very much a left brain reality. It focused on creativity versus generating imagination and focused on what was in front of us versus what was inside of us. And so for me to survive, you know, in this apparatus and this conveyor belt structure that was created, I needed to put that to the side. But later in life, in order to thrive, I needed to make sense of it. And you know, CEO was certainly very profound and, and empowering in my ability to take ownership of this as well as other forms of consciousness and understanding. Right. And to be able to go out and, and share it and talk about it like like we are now, which is great. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you too about something else you share in the book that you were aware of guides. And I'm, I'm curious because I've heard other people, other teachers talk about guides, spirit guides, that they're not necessarily what we would call an angel or something like that, but that they're energies that stay with us our whole life. And, you know, this happened when you were young so that, like you said, you're going, you're growing up, you're dealing with life and all of the other things that happen, going to school and all that. And did you feel that these guides were with you? Maybe you had forgot about them at some point, but do you feel they've always been there? Yes. In fact, there was a degree of embarrassment, not that they had towards me, but the judgment that I had towards myself, that there was an amnesia or a forgetfulness of the beauty inside of me and all around me that I was blind to, that I wasn't connected to. And it was so thin, you know, this veil of separation between, you know, this realm and the higher dimensional realm, um, you know, that I that I felt just embarrassed because there was a degree of transparency where ne- nearly every thought, everything that you experienced wasn't a solo experience. It was a collective experience with, you know, the higher guides and higher forces. I, I would say to that that, you know, for me, the spirit guides 
there was a male and female guide at the time. Their names are very clear. You know, since then, I intellectually question everything and my own skepticism gets in the way, but I could feel their presence, but it's not as profoundly clear, nearly as clear as in my NDE, where I, I think, you know, people who connect to guides, it's it's a lot of it is telepathic. It's not like they're right to the right side and left side of them looking at them, you know, right directly. In my near-death experience, I had that where I was directly looking at my guides and they were the most beautiful, magnificent beings, but they also felt like the closest extension of who I saw myself or who I was. It was, it was an incredibly intimate connection, but I saw the guides as different from the angels that I saw in a sense that the guides had a lot more of a micro focus. They were more focused on the contracting soul that they were with, which was myself or, or, or others. Uh, They're very high dimensional, but they had a, more human characteristics and more of an identity versus the angels that I saw and the countless angels that I saw, which had a lot more uniformity behind them. They weren't like these separate identities to an extent. Uh, you know, that was the angelic choir that I encountered, which was right floating in front of me, this this endless sea of childlike angels that were floating very peacefully right in front of me. And I almost thought that I was hallucinating or just having wishful thinking. And so there was like two realities happening at hand. There was a reality of the other side in this filter. And then I still had my own judgments, my own thoughts, you know, but the higher intelligence was was able to allow me to go into knowing versus my own skepticism and a trust and familiarity of this versus the adjustment of being blinded for three years in the human experience. Right. That's so that's so fascinating. And the way you describe them is so beautiful, but that in that you knew that they had one you sensed was male and one was female. I've heard mm -hmm. other people describe them as genderless. I guess that just depends on your what your own experience yeah. can be, you know. But maybe you did that just so it's understandable. I wonder. Yeah, you know, it, it comes in different forms. For instance, you know, I think all of us have different identities that we've had in different lifetimes, you know, male, female, child, you know, we're, we're, we're all in different phases and different lifetimes. But beyond that, we're a collective uh, vibration of frequency. We're a collective energy. Um, and so we take on different personas, different personalities, you know, but that's just vehicles for, you know, our, our you know, our souls and, and the quantum energy that we have. And so, you know, I think there's an octave of ourselves beyond the filters, beyond the temporary, uh, just just portrayals of this of this energy. Right, like Einstein says, energy doesn't die; just so, changes form. Yeah, right. It just goes somewhere else, and these are just kind of the carbon-based forms that we're we're dealing with right now. Right, and that who knows what this energy in the next incarnation, you know, could be a man or I don't know. <laughs> Right. Whatever, whatever I, else is there. I ultimately think that God is within ourselves. And to me, God is unlimited. Therefore, we are too. Yes. You know, God is not limited by, you know, one thing or one concept, you know, and I don't want to make readers think that God was just this palace, but sometimes we're being shown that to have an understanding of it. But if you think that that's all that it is, then all of a sudden that becomes a limited interpretation. Then all the other things that are not that are not that. And then that becomes a very limited, you know, understanding of God, that God is a limited structure and it's not unlimited and not in other things too. 
Right, right. Do you think that there are old souls and new souls? You know how some people you will meet them and you'll say, oh, that person's been around. There's just something ancient about them. And I think you have felt that as well yourself growing up, right? You kind of felt that you were an older person in a younger person's body. Right, right. I, I think, you know, a lot of souls are very old and, and some come through, you know, with, with, with more forgetfulness or they get caught in the leaf of water, you know, life paradigm. Um, it, to me, the, the biggest distinction between an old soul and a younger soul in many ways is older souls really beat to their own drum. They generate their own current and younger souls tend to just kind of live from the outside in versus the inside out. And they're very much a product of their time and their cultures. And they don't have much of a, you know, ability to discern that versus their own ability to connect to their inner intuition and inner wisdom. I think older souls are very much connected to that and their ability to assert their, their will and their own distinct um, components to themselves. But I think the collective and individual are also connected too. I think there's old pockets of, you know, cultures and countries and civilizations and some pockets in the world have a called a lower consciousness, called a younger soul consciousness, but they fall through a lot of the traps that, you know, aren't, you know, I would say are more involution, which is really going away from evolution, going away from the light. Um, you know, evolution is really ascending and, and going, you know, forward. But you know, sometimes we have to move backwards to move forwards. You know, that's a part of hopefully the greater uh, metamorphosis process. Right. That's interesting because I've read a lot of teachers that will say we are evolving to be you know, more aware, more intelligent. And then you want, you look around and you say, well, that, that can't possibly be the case, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I like that. The, what did you call it? Envolution or evolution? Well, envolution to me, and, and uh, Edgar Casey speaks about this, is really going away from your true core, um, going away from that light uh, and just being disconnected to it and forgetting that, you know, living a life, you know, very much disconnected to it. And, ev you know, evolution to me, is continuing to, to connect to that light and generating you know, even more light and, and really growing, you know, the masterpiece within as Michelangelo would talk about. So, right. You know. Do you think that's happening in the form of some people call them rainbow children, crystal children? Think, yeah. Have you heard about that? It's a lot of different group souls. I, I, I do think it's possible. And I do think that souls take group carnations. I mean, for instance, now, we just talked about 9-11, and this might be a little bit difficult for some you know, viewers or you know, listeners to hear, but a lot of my core you know, friends and family are, are, are mediums and intuitives, and they keep on telling me within a lot of their readings, they're finding a lot of the children that are reincarnating today, today were from 9-11, and they're coming in in groups. And it's just interesting how you know, there could be this group, much like there's a soul connection and the soul group, there could be this, this group, you know, carnation that happens and people of different eras that reincarnate together and just different rays of God, just different expressions of the God, a God with, with, um, you know, similar type, you know, karma, karma and, you know, and hopefully Dharma, which is to rid yourself of the story and, and, to, and to integrate your own purpose in your life. Right. Wow. That that's an intense thought to think about because, you know, a, a 20 year generation, I guess that would be possible if right. kids, you know, kids being born now. So that's, a, that's an interesting thought. 
that a lot of those people would, would reincarnate together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's being noticed. Um, and it's a running theme, you know, but I find that when there's a big trauma to, to your passing or when there's my last lifetime, I know I committed suicide, you know, at times, you know, there's not always, but, but there could be a, a quicker linearity of reincarnation, you know, at times than others. Right. You know, it, it is possible. In the book, you also shared uh, a great message that you had received, which is something that I've heard so many times over, that we should watch our thoughts, that they're the highway that will lead us to trust in our own inner power. And it was that was something I never paid attention to until maybe a decade or so ago when I started reading more about that and when I was working for Louise Hay at Hay House, and that was her whole message of affirmations and paying attention to your thoughts and how your thoughts can be reality. And I, I think that was just an interesting message that you received. Is that something that you try to do um, in your daily life to pay attention to your thoughts? Absolutely. And, and as well as parlaying as, as my work, you know, as a therapist too, you know, working in the mental health field, you know, I've just noticed how pivotal you know, thoughts are, you know, thoughts oftentimes lead to emotions and feelings, which lead to behaviors. And there's a continual triage between those three components. But ultimately, you know, life doesn't happen outside of us. It really happens inside of us. And our ability to develop a state, a space between stimuli and response allows us to have the ultimate freedom, you know, to live our true lives. And I know Viktor Frankl was very big on that in his, in his experience, you know, in the Holocaust and how he found ultimate freedom when every degree of freedom was stripped from him, you know, you know, in the concentration camps. But I do believe, yes. And not only just that, but when we're connected to thoughts that really go with our highest and greatest good and, you know, high vibrational thoughts, you know, we're able to be a lot more flow ready and really connected to, to who we are, and, you know, and to entrust that no matter what happens, I have a big superpower in me and that's my ability to transform, you know, what happened to me, you know, into something else, into something greater, just as I could allow that to take imprisonment in my life, I could also be empowered to recognize that I could make have purpose and meaning behind whatever I go through, and to take the mundane into the sacred. Do you think that if you hadn't had that experience as a child, that you would not be a, a social worker, you wouldn't have gone into that field? Yeah, no, it's hard to say because the the near death experience is is such a part of the informed life that I live. Um, when I look back on it on a subconscious base, which is things that I'm not totally aware of in the moment, but on a higher, you know, awareness, which eighty five percent of our life is usually governed by you know, things that I'm not aware of. But when I sit with that, I, I recognize that the life that I live is really given back what I was provided, you know, in moments of pure suffocation, moments of lifelessness, I was, I was shown eternal life. I was shown that that's all that there ever is. And indeed that this life is not some random biological frivolous existence, that there's a greater meaning and a greater guiding force behind anything that we go through and anything that we're aware of. And it's to entrust in faith and trust in knowing our over our own belief system, over our own fears but it was really to give back life when that was taken from me. Um, because when I lost my breath, I was able to connect to the breath of eternity and recognize that this breath that 
was the breath of creation. This breath was something that could not be taken from me. I was forever connected to this. And on an allegorical, direct basis, when people are feeling out of sorts, out of their own breath, you know, it's finding ways to step back and to really connect to the pure core truth. And sometimes we have to let lose ourselves to find ourselves, to open ourselves to a greater reality. That's all part of the shift. And do you find that just getting quiet or maybe, I mean, do you practice any kind of technique like that, like a meditation exercise or is that something you do regularly? Yes, I try to do it every day, but ultimately um, I don't hold my breath to just meditate every day. I try to you know, meditate, not just in the practice, but, but within life, within different circumstances and, and carry that. And, you know, that to me is practical, implemented meditation to me is mindfulness. I think that's the best way to describe it. But, but just carrying the sacred light within myself um, and being aware of that space where life begins, you know, in my, that ability to create. But I, I, I think for, for yourself or for listeners, um, yeah, I think the the degree of criticism that could happen for us near death experiencers is that we come from a great a place of privilege where it's easy for us to have this faith. This is how could we not? You know, this happened right in front of us. And uh, you know what I say to that is is yes, but also you know people don't understand the double edged sort of a near death experience. That with that, you know, it comes with a lot of trauma. It comes with a lot of difficulty, and it took me. You know, and I'm still trying to make sense of it, you know, not on an inner level, but on an outer level, on an ability to ground it within this human experience. Uh, And so it took a lot of work. But the good news is that you don't have to go through trauma or you don't have to suffocate to find eternity. You don't have to you don't you don't have to wait until you die to to experience eternity. But the body is not synonymous with consciousness. The consciousness just flows through the body. And so meditation to me is just a great way to form a rapport and to form an ability to understand that regardless of what happens to the body, there's something that's eternal. There's something that can never be taken from you. And I think meditation allows us to really take note of the sacred observer, the sacred eternal observer within. Right. Be the witness. Like Ram Das would say, <laughs> one of my favorites, <clears throat> excuse me, but I think it's a, it's such a great message that you share, you know, for people to be able to get quiet a little bit to to get to that place. And I like that you're saying we don't have to go through that experience, which I would imagine there is a lot of trauma that mm. comes with it. Mm. I mean, people would say, "Oh, I'm I'm jealous that you how you got to see all that." Well, it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty traumatic to get to that point, you know. So I, I can definitely understand that there is a lot of understanding. That comes later. I mean, it took you years to write this book, right? Well, I mean, why why did you feel that now was the right time to get it out? Certainly wasn't for money, because as we know, most authors, it's not about yeah. that. We we probably lose a lot more than we gain. It's certainly not to get fame, because I'm very introverted. I, I in, in myself, I, I'm just cool with watching foot with my ego. I'm cool just watching football hanging my own place, not being bothered. Anyone who knows me, I'm very low key. Uh, but, you know, it. I recognize that life isn't about us. You know, we're here to create a ripple effect. We're not just here to pay the bills and to eat and all that other stuff. That's That's an experience. But more important, we're here to have a ripple effect, which is to have something that leaves us that, that, you know, is long after our own existence. And 
Um, you know, for myself, I recognize that this experience wasn't for myself. This was in a way, yes, but, but really it was to give back to other people and to allow people to re-remember who they truly are and what's infinitely inside of them. And there's no beauty of people, there's no bigger beauty of paying it forward and people experiencing something similar than I had at, at a very young age and to seeing that that degree of change and shit that forever changes their lives. Uh, there's That's indescribable to me. And that's what I live my life for is is planting that seed and allowing people to come to their own conclusions, but recognizing that whatever I have to say is not something that people don't already know within themselves. I don't take monopolization of heaven or the near-death experience. Right. It's I think my life is really... If I'm known as a near-death experience guy, if I'm still holding on to this near-death experience, I haven't done my, my, my dharma, my job is to let it go and to allow people to take that part of it within their lives and have that, you know, rewrite their own story, you know? No, that's great. I, I love that. I love that sentiment. It's been so cool to talk with you about this and, and about your experience. I'm just curious with your life today. I mean, are you still an active LCSW and you see clients and yeah, all of that. You know, I'm I'm existing, you know, in between two worlds always. Um, you know, it's hard as a near death experiencer. I think part of it is there's a degree of homesickness that you could experience, and you know, especially when you have to lower your consciousness very low to kind of meet the energy at hand. You know, it's hard. You know, as a young kid, it's not nothing that is very new to me, but it's you know people have such a possessiveness of this false sense of reality that they get so immersed in. And as a near-death experiencer and as someone who, you know, I guess as an older soul, it's, it's hard for me to get caught up in the game and to see that, you know, that way, but it's almost kind of like you have to bog down your energy to kind of integrate. But, you know, in a way I just try to stick into my own, I shield myself and I just hold space for people to allow their own lives to be processed and recognize that we're multidimensional beings with multidimensional needs. We don't just, you know, focus on the attic or the part of the house that we like or that we feel is very ambient. We have to also roll up our sleeves and do some of the dirty work too. And so I, you can't appreciate one without the other. It's all about unconditional love and growth. And I try to do that with myself as well as with clients, not just doing the glamorous work, but some of the, you know, the more difficult work too as well. Right. Well, I wish you a lot of success with this. I hope people pick this up. It's a fascinating read. Thank There's you. some incredible insight. And I really enjoyed it. Life After Breath, that's available right now. People can find you on social, like I found you. Uh, you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, you're all over the place. Jacob Cooper. And thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, an honor. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show 
by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.